Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting May 16th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear from renowned scientist and writer E.O. Wilson about a brand new project, one of the great biology initiatives ever. And we'll talk to journalist John Horgan about human nature and other stuff. And John and E.O. Wilson talk to each other. Last Wednesday night, May 9th, E.O. Wilson sat down with John Horgan at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, where Horgan is the director of the Center for Science Writings. Wilson had just flown in from Washington, where earlier in the day he had made a big announcement. Here's an edited version of the conversation that Wilson had with Horgan. Let me uh, say about this morning, uh, it's uh, uh, this, uh, in my, my long career, uh, this is the one morning when I think I took part in making history. Now, that sounds like hyperbole, but I'm going to justify that in a moment. We met in the National Press Club for a uh, press release to announce the launch of the Encyclopedia of Life. And uh, this has been building for some time. And I'm very pleased that an article that I wrote, Writing and Science, uh, in Trends in Ecology and Evolution in, in uh, 03, uh, was the start of this notion, the Encyclopedia of Life. Here is what we propose to do in the years uh, immediately ahead. We are going to uh, set out to discover every kind of plant, animal, and microorganism on the planet. We are going to devote, we're going to create an electronic encyclopedia uh, with uh, uh, a page indefinitely extensible uh, for each one of the millions of species. Uh, this will uh, be uh, open source and open access. Uh, it will allow uh, the um, uh, study of species, any species in any part of the world, uh, at any part of the world. Uh, I mean, you can enter it from Angola and use the information to design research uh, pro programs and to begin surveys and ecological studies in your country, wherever you are, Ecuador, Angola, anywhere. Uh, I should say, too, that the Encyclopedia of Life is uh, now a consortium, and it will be a growing consortium of organizations, mostly museums and great collections. And the uh, its parallel development is the Biodiversity Heritage Library. And uh, these, are, these include the uh, major... Uh, science libraries that deal with biology, including especially biodiversity. And what they propose to do is that uh, is to scan everything ever published back to Linnaeus in biodiversity, a total of 300 or so million pages, and make those immediately available. So, John, I, I would suspect that this, if this works, and it's going to work, uh, you could, within a very few years, just sit here at this table, call up any literature all the way back on any species, call up the page, see a photograph of the uh, and, and multiple views, high-resolution uh, digital photographs, uh, auto-montage to give perfect focus of the, of the authentic specimen, the type specimen, and learn uh, everything there is to be known about it. If it's had uh, its genome uh, sequence, then you'll have a link to uh, the gene bank and so on. Everything known about that species. 
so uh, I was asked to make a statement this morning uh, in the announcement. And if I may, uh, I'll read that statement because it explains it. This is at the National Press Club. This is what I read just a few hours ago at the National Press Club. <clears throat> and I just thought it would be good to um, share it with you. Um, because I think this is, and everyone there present agrees, this this is history being made because this is going to substantially expand and modify biology mm-hmm. in many ways. And, and it will I, be accessible to anybody with an Internet connection. Absolutely. In 1758, Carl Linnaeus, the great Swedish naturalist, uh, introduced the binomial system of classification, two names, you know, for every species, which is highly effective and still used in classification. Yet, 250 years later, we still discovered only as few as 10% of the species of organisms on this planet. Most kinds of flowering plants and uh, birds have been discovered, to be sure. But our knowledge of the vast array of insects and other small invertebrates, of, of fungi, of uh, bacteria and other microorganisms are shockingly incomplete. For example, about 60,000 species of fungi, rust, molds, mushrooms, and so on, are known, 60,000. But experts estimate that the true number out there is one, uh, more than a, one and a half million. And the number of known species of nematode roundworms, uh, <laughs> of uh, the most abundant animals on Earth, four out of every five uh, animals are, 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 are nematode roundworms. So much so it is said that if you uh, to remove all the solid matter off the surface of the Earth except for um, a nematode roundworms, you would be, still be able to see a ghostly outline of most of it in the nematode roundworms. Well, at any rate, there are 16,000 species of nematode roundworms known to science with a binomial name and so on. But the number of roundworms could easily go into the hundreds of thousands or millions Bacteria, maybe 10,000 species of bacteria are known and classified. But there is, in every handful of garden soil, around five to 6,000 species of bacteria, all virtually unknown to science. And it's been estimated that in a ton of soil, four million species. Now, each one of these species uh, of organisms are uh, are ancient. Uh, they are uh, the average lifespan of a species of higher organism anyway is on the order of a million years. Each one is exquisitely well adapted in its genome and in its biology to a particular part of the environment and they're all interlocked together in intricate arrays that make up the ecosystems and upon which our own lives depend. We are, in short, on living on a little-known planet. Uh, the information that is available is greatly scattered, usually known only to experts. In dealing with the living world, we are flying blind. We're in the equivalent uh, in analyzing ecosystems of uh, a doctor who knows only 10% of the organs in the body. Hmm. So uh, we uh, have every reason to move ahead 
and add what I like to call the second dimension of biology and do it as soon as we can, which is the diversity of life on Earth. Now, at last, advances in technology, this is just within the last few years, including rapid uh, genomic sequencing. We can now uh, do a complete sequence of a bacterium, about a million base pairs, in under four hours. Uh, High-resolution digital photography, which can be done in museums with the authenticated specimens. Internet publication, and uh, that takes that information and makes it available to everyone everywhere. So you don't have to travel from museum to museum looking up uh, the volumes of uh, work on it and uh, looking at the specimen of the microscope. You just call it up and you get this magnificent image. You can do it in the upper Amazon sitting in a camp. The same work you would be doing if you traveled around the museums of Europe here. Um, so we'll be able to speed up the whole process of exploring this planet a minimum of 10 times. And the researchers and, and, and companies in biotechnology are very interested in this for obvious reasons. You know, now, as, as, as this becomes reality, they'll have that information to draw down on. Another reason we're enthusiastic about it is that you, this is the way to build up science in the developing countries. Mm -hmm. you, this is, allows instant information transfer and is cost effective. Also available to young people, to students, even to grade school kids we or are, high school kids? You, you're, you're right on target. This, is, um, this is, entails what's called citizen science. Mm -hmm. This is the sort of uh, information that can be gathered by anyone, particularly with the kind of instructions or help you would get in a school or university, and uh, it could be part of the training that leads into science, including areas like biotechnology and bioinformatics. Mm -hmm. So why should we do this? What, what's all this information worthwhile? I'll just give you a couple more paragraphs. New phenomena are going to be discovered, and connections between phenomena. This is interactive. We're going, we need to get more and more information about how this species interacts with that one. Only with such encyclopedic knowledge can biology as a whole fully mature. We think we have mature science now. We haven't even begun to get a mature science. And acquire, we hope biology would acquire predictive power. Species by species. And ecosystem by ecosystem. Uh, the encyclopedia of life is going to be a macroscope, which will be the complement of the microscope. Except here, you, you, you scan uh, the uh, totality of the diversity of life and the patterns and ecosystems and the like. Encyclopedia is going to serve the interest of humanity. The discovery of wild plant uh, species that can be adapted for agriculture, especially important now as we enter uh, a world of climate change in which whole continents like Sub-Saharan Africa and Australia are going to go into deep drought periods. We need, we need dry land agriculture. We need the plants. We need the genes uh, from other plants that will allow dry land agriculture to be productive. Uh, and new classes of pharmaceuticals. We've got to keep winning the race against the bacteria. Countless species of organisms have not just fungi, but many other kinds of organisms have been running the race with bacteria for um, several hundred million years, and we don't know how they've won it, how they've kept ahead. We've done it with antibiotics and other devices, 
but we need to get into that too. The outbreak of the disease, disease agents and harmful plant and animal invasive will be better anticipated. Never again uh, need we overlook so many golden opportunities in the living world around us or be so often surprised by the sudden appearance of destructive uh, uh, aliens uh, that uh, spring from that little known world. So I hope I've given you a sense where biology, a large part of biology is going. For more on the Encyclopedia of Life, go to www.eol.org. Later in the conversation, Horgan and Wilson talked about the current climate in the relationship between science and religion. There's a lot of tension between science and religion right now. And so you've got some of your colleagues, um, Richard Dawkins, I guess is the the uh, uh, most high-profile example, are um, saying very harsh, critical things about religious people. Uh, your book obviously is so different in tone. Um, I wonder why you decided to write a book that's sort of reaching out to religious people instead of trying to convince them that their religious views are um, foolish. If you read the first chapter of the book, The Creation, which I just published, well, last September, mm -hmm. you'll find that there is uh, just about uh, the strongest, bold-faced, clear-cut statement of secularism right. you'll find anywhere, mm -hmm. as strong as Richard Dawkins. But what I say is, to I write this book apostrophically. That's for the English majors here. <laughs> uh, imagine to an imaginary uh, Southern Baptist pastor, and I say, uh, if we were to meet, we I I think I know you well enough to call you friend, and I feel that if we met and spoke privately about our deepest beliefs, we would find. Compatibility of friendship. Right. And uh, what I'd like to suggest is that we put aside the sources of the culture, you know, the main issues of the culture war right now, uh, and um, come to a transcendent issue which we could uh, uh, serve uh, together. Science and, and religion are the two most powerful forces in America, in the world. Uh, together, if they chose, they could solve some of the most important problems in the world. This is not the time to be divided. Let's put aside the things that divide us and, and, and meet on meet sort of at the river and go forward. Well, uh, that is a radically different uh, way of approaching the religious faithful from Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins... Uh, I call him, uh, he's the general in the military wing of the uh, secularist, and, <laughs> and uh, he wants to carpet bomb all religion <laughs> until, as the famous uh, Air Force general said during the Vietnam War, he wants to carpet bomb it until he sees the rubble bouncing. <laughs> and he somehow figures that uh, by discrediting all religion enough and as a delusion, um, and uh, people will just give it up uh, eventually. Yeah. But that's not going to happen. And furthermore, uh, the uh, reaction of the religious communities is to push back right. and to widen the divide and say, well, this is more reason not to be dealing with atheistic scientists and environmentalists and so on. Uh, when I propose that we 
come together on this issue, I, would, I didn't know what the results would be. I, I was nervous, uh, but it's been astonishing. So you've I've actually heard from Christian religious... A flood religion. of response. Really? Virtually all positive. Hmm. Uh, early on, um, another person with this type of approach and interest, Eric Chibian at Harvard, mm-hmm. who was a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, and I uh, called on Eric, on uh, uh, Richard Sizek, vice president of the um, National Association of Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And we all agreed, we three agreed, that we ought to have a retreat with a dozen science and environmental leaders and a dozen evangelical leaders and see what would come of it on the themes in the book of creation. Mm-hmm. We held that retreat in uh, October, or November rather, in uh, um, uh, South Georgia, in a remote area. And the effects were astonishing. We we not only got together and were able to write a covenant satisfying to to all, but also we formed lasting, what I think will be lasting friendships. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've recently been a a guest of the, uh, by their invitation, of the uh, leaders of the Mormon Church. And I, I have uh, recently returned from uh, Samford University, S A M F O R D, Samford University in Birmingham, called the uh, Ivy League of the Southern Baptist Conference, mm-hmm. where, uh, of course, I'm a native son. I'm from Alabama, and uh, I still know how to say, "Y'all got any grits?" <laughs> uh, but the point is that uh, so that made that opened the door a little more widely. But the 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 um, Enthusiasm was in, was astonishing. Uh, you know, the, the welping, welcoming, the friendly discussion, and so on. So the signs are very good. I, I believe that uh, there was a sense of relief on the part of evangelicals uh, that uh, scientists were willing to offer the hand of friendship. That never happened before. Wilson's latest book, again, is called The Creation. His last Scientific American article, called The Bottleneck, appeared in the February 2002 issue. Just Google E.O. Wilson and Scientific American, and that article is one of the first results to come up. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. You weigh slightly less in parts of North America than in most other places because the earth there is still rebounding from the weight of ice sheets from the last ice age. Story two. Calculations show that in about two billion years, the entire solar system will wind up on the outskirts of a new galaxy. Story three. New EPA mileage ratings mean that hybrid vehicles will suddenly lose efficiency and story four as you get older your cell walls begin to deplete energy we'll be back with the answer but first after john horgan was done talking to eo wilson john and i had a short conversation hey john how are you good steve so tell me now you you're famously the author of the end of science (laughs) and now you run a science writing program not famously enough um but yes i'm um i wrote a book called the end of science and then I end up at a uh, science and engineering or, uh, oriented school, so uh, one of life's little paradoxes. Well, what I want to know is why are you training these students to write about something that is ending? 
I'm trying to infect them with my evil end of science meme. Um, no, I've actually become a little more upbeat about the future of science over the last few years. I, and I've always said that there's plenty of room in applied science sure. and in understanding climate change and uh, all of our environmental problems and doing something about it. Right. You were and, talking about the really big questions. Yeah, sort of understanding where the universe came from and what its basic laws are. And I still think that that picture is basically in place. But, yes, lots of room for applied science, uh, coming up with better treatments for cancer and other diseases and technologies that can help get us out of this uh, environmental crisis we're in. So what, what kind of issues have you been thinking about lately, and, and uh, what are you planning to write about? Actually, my big obsession over the last couple of years, and I guess it's obvious why, is um, warfare. And uh, my sense is that most people today are really fatalistic about war being a permanent part of the human condition. And actually, uh, some of the scholarship on warfare that looks at the history of war, origins of warfare going back even uh, before human history began, going all the way back to chimpanzees, sort of supports a fatalistic point of view, but I think wrongly. If you really understand the research correctly, you're led to a much more optimistic conclusion that war arises out of certain circumstances and we can get past it. And we can also get past militarism. And uh, we'll reach a stage where uh, we look back at uh, this period of war and won't even understand um, how we could have been so consumed by it. So I'm talking to all these anthropologists and primatologists and archaeologists and uh, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, even neurobiologists who study uh, the neural basis of aggression and that sort of thing. Might that be the beginning of a book? I think I would like to write a book. I'd like to write an upbeat, positive book because, you know, mainly I'm gloom and doom and the end of this and the end of that. And uh, the end of war would be, um, that's a good ending. Uh, and, and actually, I think that a book like this um, could have a positive impact uh, because this sense uh, that war is just a permanent part of things really is so pervasive. I did a, um, a survey of uh, students here at Stevens last fall. I actually taught a course called War and Human Nature, and I asked students in my class to survey other students around the school. They surveyed more than uh, 200 students at all uh, about whether they thought war would ever um, vanish once and for all. Uh, over 90% of the respondents thought that we will never stop fighting wars. So to me, that's, you know, it's, it's really an extreme fatalism. And I'd love to do something to try to talk people out of that point of view. If the science actually bears that oh, point I'll of view. I'll find a way to make the science work. All right. So tell us about, you've got some kind of a, a web thing going with George Johnson from the Times. Oh, yeah, Blogging Heads TV. So um, Robert Wright who's just really talented. He doesn't like being called a science writer anymore. He's transcended that. Now he's like a kind of global, cosmic, culture, political pundit. Anyway, he created this thing called Blogging Heads TV, which is basically um, video blogging. So he gets two pundits uh, to uh, talk to each other about current events. Mostly it's been stuff, you know, real sort of inside the beltway uh, stuff like the Scooter Libby trial or that woman, uh, Ann Coulter, you know, whether she's like a total... Bad or awful. <laughs> right. 
but Bob thought it would be fun to have a, um, a science uh, blogging head show. And so he asked uh, George Johnson, who's one of my favorite uh, science writers, and me to do this thing. And we've done, I guess, five segments. We just talk for an hour about whatever is on our minds, and, um, and it's a blast. And how can listeners access that? Bloggingheads.tv. That's the website address. By the way, Ann Coulter has written extensively about science, so you might want to include her in some of your science discussions. Are you goofing on me? Is this no, uh, that's absolutely true. And her, her last book includes chapters on evolutionary theory and why it's nonsense. I would love to do a slam down blogging heads with Ann Coulter. That would be, that would be really fun. And I would love to watch it. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Thanks, Steve. Rest assured that when I talked about Coulter explaining why evolution was nonsense, I was putting myself in her shoes. My evolved feet and head still hurt. John Horgan and George Johnson's discussions, as well as many other interesting conversations, can be found at bloggingheads.tv. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, you weigh slightly less in parts of North America because the Earth is rebounding from ice sheets. Story two, solar system destined for boondocks of new galaxy. Story three, new mileage ratings mean that hybrids will appear less efficient. And story four, as you get older, your cell walls begin to deplete energy. Time's up. Story one is true. The rebounding Earth that was crushed under the ice thousands of years ago means that you do weigh less in parts of Canada and the Northeast U.S. Not much, maybe an eighth of an ounce for the average person. The real story here is that satellite data have indeed confirmed that these areas have slightly lower gravity than elsewhere. For more, check out the May 11th episode of the daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. Our whole solar system may be on the way to what one astronomer called a retirement home in the country. Our Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. Calculations by researchers at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics show that when the galaxies hit each other in a couple of billion years, the sun and planets will wind up at the outer reaches of the new merged galaxy. The paper will appear in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The URL is listed in the informational description of this podcast. Story three is true. New EPA mileage ratings bring hybrid efficiencies down. For example, the Prius loses 12 miles per gallon from its city driving estimate, according to Wired. The new standards mean it would take longer for a purchaser to recoup the extra price of a hybrid in gas savings. But I question whether most hybrid buyers have long-term gas savings as their major objective. I think many buyers think they're simply doing something good by driving a hybrid, and that feeling is worth the extra cost to them. All of which means that story four about your cell walls depleting energy as you age is, of course... Totally bogus. Nevertheless, I recently heard New York City radio talk show host and Guardian Angels founder Curtis Sliwa say, quote, As you get older, your cell walls begin to deplete energy, end quote, in a commercial for some kind of, you know, medicinal-style preparation that people no doubt take in order to keep their cell walls impervious to the depletion of energy. Note to Curtis and the people who wrote the ad copy, people do not have cell walls. Plants and some other life forms have cell walls. People and other animals do not have cell walls. So if you are a human being and your cell walls are indeed depleting energy, that's probably the least of your problems. Well, 
Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at the website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Y'all got any grits?